talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Dad has taken down the Halloween decorations for another year. I mean, well, at least what Mother Nature didn't already remove for him. Nah. Fake tombstone, anyone? Hey! Here's That's my tombstone! That's my pumpkin! I want my pumpkin! Actually, you know, uh, over the weekend, this was before Halloween, uh, my wife and I took the dog for a walk around the neighborhood, and I think at least two or three times, um, I went out to the street to pick things up and put them on people's lawns. I don't know, it may have been the wrong house. Uh, so somebody might have got a new pumpkin or a new flying bat or, or whatever it is that you lost. Uh, but yeah, I, we were just out walking the dog. It's like, I don't think that's supposed to be there. It's supposed to be over there. And then there's stuff out in the road, whatever. I was lucky I didn't get hit. Good afternoon. It is 3.09. And what's with the wet snow? Uh, good afternoon. It's 3.09. It's Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board. Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks in the newsroom. And we'll pick the song today appropriately, I guess, suppose. Uh, go ahead, Will. Tell everybody what your song was. Uh, the song was called Whiteout Conditions, uh, which we don't exactly have right now, but uh, no. I'm sure it's on people's minds. Uh, and it's by the new pornographers. All right, there you go. Is that a uh, synthetic drum that we heard in there? Uh, I'm. Uh, it could be just a human the who's reason, so good at it that they're synthetic. <laughs> the reason that I say that, uh, I was watching a Netflix uh, documentary. I love the Netflix docs, and it's called Count Me In, and it's about great drummers. And various bands from the Beatles all the way up to the present day. And it goes through the 80s and talks about the synthetic drum yeah. and how it changed the opinion of the drummer. And the drummer at one point thought it was going to be replaced. And, of course, that's not the case. But anyway, that's what me that's what made me think of that. Uh, good choice. And it fits for today, Will. Uh, and, of course, uh, Will and the rest of the gang will be joining us around the big round table coming up after the 430 News. you want to hang around for that. Feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900. CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. Opening these airports to international travel is another step forward in rebuilding and reopening our travel system. I'm pleased that increased vaccination levels have allowed us to safely reopen these additional Canadian airports to international passenger flights. That's the Transportation Minister announcing that international air travel returning to more regional airports. Uh, obviously, those flights restricted for most of the year as part of uh, COVID-19 control in a global pandemic. Uh, Victoria, St. John's, Abbotsford, Kelowna, uh, Saskatoon, Regina, Waterloo, and the Hammer uh, will all now uh, be fully open as far as international travel or certainly moving towards that. I shouldn't jump ahead of myself here. Obviously, the Hammer already a central hub of cargo in uh, the country and as we all know uh, what happened during the pandemic and people were order- ordering things uh, places like uh, John C. Monroe uh, Hamilton International Airport were busy as stink and now you add this to it it's good to see life is slowly returning to whatever the new normal is let's bring in Dina uh, Dina Carlucci Director of Business Development and Customer Experience John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport with us now Dina thanks for the time I hope you're well Thanks, Scott. Good to hear from you. Hope you're well as well. So, uh, yes, thanks. So, uh, give us the what's it been like through this pandemic uh, at uh, at Hamilton International Airport? Obviously, a massive cargo hub, so busy. But how has life been different for you? 
Uh, yeah, so from the onset of the pandemic, our cargo business definitely was the, the mainstay of the business. It uh, never shut down. It was always operating at full tilt and growing by virtue of all of our shopping habits, uh, buying things online and really propelling e-commerce. Um, side by side with that, though, on our passenger side of the business, we never shut down. We definitely continue to have a domestic operation for essential travel reasons. Mm-hmm. And then as travel restrictions lightened up, different waves that we were going through, um, airlines were adding more domestic schedules across Canada, and passengers just returned to flying in, in that regard. So thankfully, um, our domestic Canada product has uh, stayed strong alongside, but we've been anxiously awaiting for today's news, and it's been a long 20 months of not being able to accept international flights into Hamilton International Airport. and. We're very pleased at today's news from Minister Algabra allowing that um, effective November 30th. So explain what happens as of November 30th and what has opened up. So our international program, um, Scott, includes flights into Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean. And we work Mm -hmm. with three international carriers for that service, namely Swoop, Transat, and Sunwing. So what this means is that the flights coming back from these respective countries can now land at Hamilton and be processed through our customs hall, Uh, whereas up to now, um, the flights that uh, started uh, up as of yesterday, for example, into Orlando International, sorry, Orlando Sanford, um, that flight is permitted to depart from the Hamilton airport, as it did yesterday, but in Mm. terms of its return home, it was restricted to land at uh, one of 10 airports in Canada, so the nearest being Toronto Pearson. And that goes away on November 30th. They can return back here, back home to Hamilton. Obviously, this is going to make things uh, life a lot easier for uh, everyone involved. What about the cargo? You talked about how, and we'll come back to the, the international travel in a sec, but uh, you talked about how cargo had gone up. Do you mean, do you think that's going to maintain at those levels? Well, obviously, cargo is probably just going to grow out of, out of Hamilton anyway. But do you, mean, do you think that uh, those levels will be, uh, will be maintained uh, as we slowly get back to whatever the new normal is? Right. Well, in in 2020, we saw double-digit growth over the prior year of 2019, and very strong at 24%. We're we're still seeing some very strong trends in 21, um, and with carriers, like with DHL's new sort facility on site, there's a lot more activity coming through, and then, of course, CargoJet is one of the main carriers, uh, and they work closely with uh, Prime Air and, and the Amazon business. So, you know, I don't have the actual number to close out the year as yet, but it's it's very strong, and um, new habits have formed, and we're seeing that that is is staying. It's interesting because uh, I remember very uh, talking to my wife and family. You know, walking around the house, you normally see you know you know what the flight plans are, are, are and you, you know you see traffic coming in and out of airports and such. And during the pandemic, it literally stopped unless it had you know one of those names on the side that you just mm-hmm. mentioned. Now, now that things are opening up, and as you said, as of November thirtieth, uh, Hamilton will be opening up to to international travelers again. Are customers anxious to come back? Uh, they're still a little hesitant about all of this. Um, from what we're seeing, there's there's quite a bit of pent up demand and and people trying to resume life, right, and, and getting back to the things that we once yeah. enjoyed, and that includes travel. So I would say the advanced booking curve looks strong for most of these airlines. Um, I think they're in for a good season, and I think with Transport Canada's uh, regulations mandating vaccines. Um, there's a grace period in effect as we speak, but as of last Saturday, October 30, 
Uh, Transport Canada requires any um, passenger departing a Canadian airport to prove their vaccination status. And then for a period of, of about a month until November 30 as well, you can produce a negative PCR test in lieu of vaccine proof, uh, just as a grace period mechanism to get us there. So really, by November 30, as everyone's planning winter holidays, you're likely going to be in a good good situation with traveling only with vaccinated passengers um, by virtue of this new regulation. And then, of course, the international skies opens up again here at Hamilton. So if travelers are out there listening, uh, obviously, November 30th, things are going to open up to them, international travelers, as of November 30th. Can they start booking this stuff now? Yes, absolutely. The schedules have been loaded since summertime because we were all optimistic that this day would come. Mm. Um, and again, there's a new service into Orlando, Sanford uh, that started yesterday, southbound, and it's a twice-weekly service with Swoop. And then next week, we're starting into St. Pete Clearwater with Swoop which will be once a week. And then Swoop will start up their Cancun, Puerto Vallarta, and Montego flights in December and January, respectively. And then we're very excited as well to welcome back after 20 months, Transat, Air Transat, uh, starts back December 19 with weekly service to Punta Cana and Cancun. And then Agat and Sunwing, they're back in January, and they're going to be flying to six destinations. Great news for John's... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Quick. That helps your listeners. Yeah, uh, go uh, ahead. Cana, Cayo Santa Maria, Montego Bay, Veradero, Cayo Coco, and Cancun. All right, John C. Monroe, Hamilton International Airport, as of November 30th, back open for business to international travel, just in time for us to get the heck out of Dodge by winter. Uh, slowly, <laughs> things are returning to uh, normal. Thank you. Dina Carlucci with us, Director of Business Development and Customer Experience, John C. Monroe, Hamilton International Airport. November 30th, things open up again. Uh, Dina, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. We look forward to seeing you at the airport. After the leaders go away and after all of those press conferences calm down a little bit, that's when we get into the nitty gritty. That's when all of these countries start negotiating. And if you look back to previous summits, this is going to be a hard negotiation. They're going to have to come together and try to come up with something that moves forward, a lot forward from the Paris Agreement, and actually comes up with a plan of trying to keep 1.5 alive. That's the saying we hear a lot here, is how to keep warming to 1.5 degrees by the end of this century. And already scientists are saying, if we stay on track, that's not going to happen. That's Global's Crystal Gamansing uh, in Europe talking about the COP. COP26, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau discussing global carbon pricing, saying that's the way to go, trying to convince uh, the rest of the world to jump on board. And uh, this discussion seems to have a different tone this year. Is it different this time around? Uh, and, and how do you balance all of this, the politics, the progress? And where does industry fit in all of this? And how do they contribute uh, contribute to the solution? Let's bring in Jessica Green, Professor of Political Science the School of the Environment at the University of Toronto and with us now. Jessica, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Jessica, we've, I've asked this of, of many people in your scenario, in your situation, and, and I'm, I'm sure there isn't really any right answer, and I know it's a global problem, and, and it's not as simple as what I'm about to say, but it seems whenever we hear about this, that, um, there, there's more, uh, there's more interest, there's more, uh, necessity, there's more need, uh, there's more anxiety about, uh, about all of this. More and more people are understanding what it is all about and what climate change 
change is all about and the need to move forward on this. But then after that, it gets really confusing because nobody <laughs> seems to find or have a solution on the way out. For example, there's a problem. What do we need to do? Well, we need to do this, then we need to do that, then we need to do this, and then all the way down. And again, it's a global problem. Everyone's situation is different. But, you know, I keep hearing out of this conference, coal, 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 coal. So why don't we start there? And everybody work towards bringing that down. And I, I know for some parts of the world, that's harder than the uh, than others. But, you know, it seems that it's like we've got to kill everything as opposed to finding the solution for the biggest problem, which is coal. And I, and I guess my point here is, should we not be focusing on one thing and then applying to that, whether it's a cleaner solution, whether it's another fossil fuel like natural gas or, or something like a wind turbine? We don't seem to be having that discussion about what we do next yeah well thanks for having me and you're right that um, we have made it very complicated um, but in fact it's quite simple if you think about it um, we need to get rid of fossil fuels as quickly as possible all fossil fuels the dirtiest one should come first and so yes I agree with you we got to get rid of coal but we have to phase out fossil fuels across the world and indeed if we're going to get to 1.5 uh, projections suggest that we need to peak in the next five years. Global carbon emissions need to peak in the next five years. So what does that mean in terms of practice? Well, basically, I think it means uh, it means that governments need to actually put their money where their mouth is. You know, we've seen over the last two days uh, lots of governments making lots of promises about what they're going to do, Justin Trudeau included. Um, and, you know, promises are really nice, but what we really need now is a roadmap and that roadmap starts with a huge set of um, uh, appropriations for actually making these things happen, right? And the reality is that there are a lot of powerful interests that don't want us to decarbonize. I mean, take uh, electricity, for example. Electricity is a simple problem uh, as far as climate change goes, right? We have all of the technology to decarbonize the, uh, elect uh, the electricity grid, but we haven't done it. Why haven't we done it? It's because uh, there are a lot of people who, whose livelihoods and uh, are wrapped up in the fossil fuel industry. So we need to take care of those people, and and governments need to take a stand with the uh, with their voters and say, look, this is what we need to do right now. This is gonna. This is. Uh, it is much cheaper for us to invest in decarbonization in the present than dealing with the catastrophic effects of climate change in the very near future. So where can we make the biggest dent? The prime minister was was selling uh, a global price on carbon. Uh, that that was what his he was featuring during uh, this summit. Where can we make the biggest dent? Yeah, I am a skeptic of uh, carbon pricing. I've done the research, and um, it shows that carbon pricing doesn't make a huge dent in carbon emissions. Usually, um, in best case scenario, one to two percent per year. And what it does do is it makes a lot of voters really angry because they have to pay more for energy. It really and it fills. And is this not used to fill government coffers if it's not solving the problem? Um, well, it it can be used to. I mean, it, it is. Look, the government needs to raise revenue. There is no doubt about that. Yeah, so I don't yeah. think they're making money off of this proposition. Um, but what we need to be doing is investing in uh, basically a just transition. And that means um, guaranteeing people that they will have uh, an income uh, 
uh, and a livelihood after we close the tar sands and after we start, you know, shutting down the fossil fuel industry, uh, particularly in in Alberta. And so what it means is the government has to invest. It has to invest in a jobs guarantee. It has to invest in public transportation. And what we've done so far is we've basically said, if we're going to solve climate change, everybody has to deal with less. You have to make do with less. And the reality is that we can and should imagine a world where you can have more. It's just going to be different, right? And that's going to require a couple of things. It's going to require the government making these investments in decarbonizing um, and supporting households, middle-class households, through, um, you know, through the transition of, of those increased costs. And it's going to require a redistribution of wealth. I mean, full stop. One of the biggest things that we can do for climate change right now is raise the corporate minimum tax and close the tax haven loopholes so that wealthy corporations and wealthy individuals pay their fair share. I mean, the, the new um, G, uh, OECD uh, tax corporate tax deal is estimated that it's going to bring in $500 billion a year in tax revenue. Now, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that can in the end, is it not in everyone's best interest, even from a business perspective, to find this solution? Because you'll make a lot of money at that. Well, I think eventually that's true. I mean, and or, or at least in the short term, you're going to lose a lot of money. I mean, it's yeah. ludicrous for our government to uh, invest in fossil fuel pipelines right now it's a so you don't you don't you don't think it'd be worth you you don't think natural gas pipeline propane pipelines uh, cleaner fuels like that are are worth not worth investing in no because the reality is that those still lock in fossil gas for you know you make the capital investments and that's going to last on the order of you know three four five six decades and 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 that time we need to be not using those fossil fuels at all even if it means those pipelines would reduce the amount of coal in the air I'm sorry? Even if it means those pipelines would reduce oh, the amount of coal in the air. I see. I see. Well, I mean, this is, this is the big question. And, and, you know, so people say, well, uh, you know, we should transition from coal to gas because gas is better than coal. It's true. But <laughs> we're still, but, we're, but gas is still really bad for the planet, right? And so mm-hmm. the time for incrementalism is over. We need to face facts that decarbonization needs to happen as quickly as possible and that not doing so is going to cost us a lot more even in the short term. I mean, we know that climate change is here in Canada, right? We saw what happened this summer with the wildfires. Um, We know that Canada is warming uh, on average twice as fast as the rest of the world because we're further north in the Arctic. So this is stuff we have to do now, you know. Jessica Green with us, professor of political science with the School of the Environment at the University of Toronto. Jessica, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. When you get to be my age, everything hurts. You don't need an excuse. There you go. Uh, good afternoon. It is 4.37. It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, Willerskin on the board, uh, Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks around the big round table. Uh, talking about the issues of the day, feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Whoops, dropped my pen.
Glenn. Uh, 3221 star 9900 on your cell. All right, kids, poll question of the day. Let's start with that. Uh, COVID-19 vaccine, should it be mandatory for kids in school? Uh, I got kids, and uh, they have to have a certain amount of uh, vaccine uh, credit accreditation before they can get into school. But as always, and as everything, there are kids that for some reason can't take it and are exempt from it, whether it's uh, medical reasons or religious reasons or this, that, or the other. Uh, so I'm guessing, again, we're making a lot of hoopla, and the same thing is going to happen, the same thing with vaccine passports, same thing with everything. It's it's mandatory, and except there's always an exception. Let's start with you, Ted. What are your thoughts? Should this be mandatory for the Chitlins? Well, I would you know, why is this any different than, I don't know, getting, uh, you know, vaccines as uh, kids are, are, are in, uh, you know, they go through ECE and grades one and two, mm-hmm. and they got to get all their vaccinations to get that little little yellow book that shows all the shots that you've had. So, I again, I don't understand, you know, if if a child has a problem and has, you know, there's an allergy to it or can't take it, fine. But otherwise, I really don't think that there should be any issue from anybody. It's there. It's for their safety. And again, I'll say this again, double, uh, double thing there. Your rights, generally, do not supersede that of the government. If the government says you need to do this, then, you know, yeah. you, you can't sit there and say, well, no. And I think what you'll... And I think what you'll see happen here is that as Health Canada approves more and, and there's more and more study being done on this, you're eventually going to see that. But again, it's still billed as an emergency distribution drug at this point. Uh, once it goes through all of the jumps through all the hoops that it has through with the, you know, the Center for Disease Control or Health Canada, I'm sure that's exactly what will happen. But again, this makes for great fodder from the opposition. Diana, what are your thoughts? Uh, any different than a measles vaccination here? Uh, no, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't have kids, but do they still need that yellow card that like we had when we were kids? Because there's mixed. Yeah, they've moved on from that, I think. So you don't need but that you, anymore. You, well, no, you, you still have record of it, but whether it's that, still that yellow card, okay. I think there's, there's a digitized get version in, of it. get into a school nowadays, you need to have your measles, rubella, chicken Absolutely, pox. absolutely. Mm. Now, if, like any vaccination, you decide that for whatever reason, uh, whether it's health reasons, you can get an exemption. There are kids in the schools that are not fully vaccinated. Uh, and just like there is for, I guess, COVID-19, it's the same thing for, for all the rest. So I, I'm guessing once it finishes clear, the hurdles for the testing inside or for the uh, uh, testing and and, uh, and all the research that they've done that eventually in a year from now it will be added to the list but it's still I think categorized as an emergency vaccination at this time well I don't know if you watch the show you are you watching you right now no no are you Ted no I don't think Ted's watching you no are you will you watching you I'm living you. No, oh. no. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to just put a preface on here. Spoiler alert. If you listen to you and you're not past the, uh, episode three, don't listen. Um, so there's one of the episodes is the little baby uh, gets infected with measles and gets very, very ill because one of the students in the class isn't vaccinated. Yeah. And I won't tell you what happens at the end of the episode, Ooh, but there you go. Yeah. Victoria Pedretti, who plays one of the main characters, doesn't like that very much. And that's all I'm going to say. And people that watch you can take their own conclusions. But I think it's it's very important for that to happen so that this doesn't happen. You know, other kids oh. shouldn't have to pay the price 
And we've been death. through this, you yeah. know, a hundred years ago with other yeah, plagues exactly. and what have you. We've already seen the, you know, what, what the uh, results of, of a great vaccination program is. And they've said that because of COVID-19 and just the disruptions, it has slowed down the vaccination for all those other things that kids normally get in school, which they have to uh, make up for. Uh, everyone vaccinated, Will, are you in on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, as you say, mandatory is mandatory with a nudge and a wink. Uh, but, uh, that's the system we got to go to. I feel like it's going to become a little more stricter. They're going to scrutinize people's, uh, you know, ability to pass on it, uh, in the future. And I think that's worthwhile. Again, we're facing things that we didn't have to deal with for several decades, almost a hundred years. It's time we kind of learn the lessons again about why we got into this and maybe, yeah, get a little educated. You know, Diana brings up a very valid point, though. If, you know, say we make it mandatory for, okay, you've got to get the COVID-19, but then, you know, these other ones we don't necessarily have to. Well, you do have to, but you have to, and if you don't, you have to jump through the hoops, get the education, uh, doctor's note, what have you. But, you know, again, I would imagine this vaccine will be treated exactly the way as every other vaccine is. All right, uh, minimum wage. Uh, the premier was talking about this today, up to $15. Uh, this is a very, very um, uh, contentious issue depending on what side you are on and the question i keep coming back to is is this what the minimum wage was designed to be um because the majority of the people who are on minimum wage are younger people who are you know in school what have you and then of course there's the person that's got two or three jobs trying to make a living at it so should that person be paid the same person as a kid who's just off the street and and looking at their first job so i'm not sure it was the minimum wage is it designed to live on ted uh, I think there's other programs that yeah, should be you know, addressing that. But I understand your point. There's like the, the high school student versus somebody who, uh, like a single mom who is yeah. trying to work. So, but how do you distinguish the two? Isn't that some sort of discrimination where, well, so and so you're. Well, that's because it's not batted out with a minimum wage. It's, it's failed, you know, the, this person applies for a different program and addresses that. But to give everybody a minimum wage increase, uh, and, and again, it's not, is it designed to live on? I don't think initially it was. And if that's the way it is now, then 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 there should be some sort of uh, some sort of policy put in place so it is fair to everybody. But yeah, I'm not sure that's what it was originally designed for. He, interesting, and I know that the premier like I almost feel bad for him. Like, he can't win. First of all, I he didn't do it. Now he doesn't. Now they're mad that he did. It. Some people <laughs> yeah. don't like the fact that he did it. Uh, the union uh, leader Jerry Diaz. We had the clip. I understand he's happy, and uh, Smokey Tom is happy as well. So. Diana? Yeah, I mean, I think it needed to happen for sure. I think, you know, obviously it's nowhere near what you need to live on right now, especially in this climate that we're currently in with, you know, the inflation and everything. Um, I think living wage needs to be the bigger discussion because yeah. I don't think it's fair for, like you said, you know, uh, a single mom or perhaps somebody that got laid off when they're 60 and has to work mm -hmm. now part time and make minimum wage. But again, how do you do that? How do you say, okay, this, this kid's working at McDonald's at 16, but this guy's, you know, worked his whole life. And But wait a sec, we do that with every single job. Not everybody gets paid the same amount of money. That's There's a true. starting wage. And then as you go up through positions, seniority, whatever, you get more money. So, I mean, it's no different here, is it? No, I guess, I guess not. Will? Uh, I think it is an imperfect system, uh, no matter what we're dealing with. Right now, I do want to note that some of the young kids you might be looking at and they say, well, that kid, you know, some of them are, are uh, I had one friend who got emancipated from their parents uh, and had to figure it out on their own. But overall, as Diana said, we need to look at 
living wage like as a separate thing or frankly we need to be innovative that seems to be the theme of everything we're talking about today we need to be innovative look towards the future new solutions to these because you can't just jury rig things all the way with what you already have and i don't yeah it's i don't spiral. think this is I don't think this is a one-size-fits-all for, for this discussion. No. I think that it's got to be a much more broader discussion. All right, thanks, kids. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Last week, Blackhawks ownership said it was looking to settle a pair of lawsuits against them. Around the same time, Chicago's lawyers moved to dismiss both cases. And while the NHL has offered Beach and his family psychological services, Bettman wouldn't commit to helping the teenager Aldrich has already been convicted of assaulting after the Blackhawks' recommendation helped him secure a high school coaching job. I would have to know more about that circumstance. All right, uh, that is Mike Drolet, Global News, talking about the uh, the sexual assault of Kyle Beach, which has uh, uh, the story now out, and we know who John Doe is, and the story behind the Chicago Blackhawks and the NHL and how they have handled uh, this story. What is really frightening about all of this is had something had been done, had... Uh, these allegations been taken seriously, uh, perhaps a 16-year-old high school uh, student uh, would not have been insulted by the exact same player. Uh, sorry, by the exact same video coach. Uh, by the way, that video coach served jail time uh, in the United States for that assault. Uh, and again, um, you have to wonder if the NHL and the Chicago Blackhawks are doing enough to address this as opposed to just trying to brush it all under the table. Let's bring in Lisa Taylor, former lawyer, now associate professor teaching journalism, law, and ethics at the School of Journalism, University of Ryerson, and is with us now. Thank you for the time, Lisa. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. How are you doing? Uh, we're, I'm doing well. Thanks for your time. Your thoughts on Gary Bettman's reaction to all of this? I, I was watching portions of the news conference, and, and it was it was awkward and uncomfortable even to watch. Uh, your thoughts on how the NHL handled this? Oh man, it's almost parody, isn't this? I mean, yeah. almost parody. Uh, in 2021, to to have Bettman say, "I'm sorry for what Scott has been through." As opposed to, I'm sorry for the fact that this happened on my watch, and yeah. I and others have so much accountability. You know, that's like me saying to you, I'm sorry, your feelings are hurt. I'm not sorry for anything when I say that. It's This has been a long time coming for the organization, or so the idea that it's, you know... There's no there's no give here on the idea that, well, this is what happens when you're thrust into the spotlight. This is a decade in the making and months in the making in terms of it being front and center on Batman's desk. So there's just no excuse for such deplorable messaging. On the other hand, hey, it really tells us a heck of a lot about where the NHL stands um, on protecting young people from sexual assault. Uh, that's been that's been made really clear. And it's pretty damn troubling. Is this going away for the NHL? I hope not. I absolutely positively hope not, and I don't think it is. Um, you know, I, I went looking in the murkier corners of the Internet today, never a great idea, but looking to see, you know, where are those headlines that make me just, you know, as someone who, who spends an awful lot of time thinking about how we can report on the crime of sexual assault in a way that doesn't play to all the ugly old tropes and stereotypes. So I went looking in kind of the creepy corners to see, are those headlines out there? I'm not seeing many of them. I think if there's one thing that, that is good coming out of this, it's that anyone who gives a crap about hockey, um, about young people, and about the pervasiveness of sexual assault is looking at the NHL and saying, this is precisely what should not be done. 
It's a clear, clear guide on how not to manage, um, you know, a violent, you know, being aware of a violent crime and, and trying to. Um, Lisa, are you there? Yeah, I am. Sorry, you dropped. Oh, up sorry. For a second. Yeah, we lost each other for a sec. Uh, you know, to me, there's two different points here, and and I think this is where the NHL really fails. Um, you know, there's one thing on how they handled the case of Kyle Beach, but the fact that a 16 year old kid was later assaulted by the same person uh, because nothing was done in the Kyle Beach case. I mean, doesn't that take this to a different level? I think it does take it to a different level, but I, I am a little wary about connecting those two because, um, you know, in, in the Beach interview, the degree of pain and self-recrimination he's experiencing through this um, is heartbreaking. So, so right now, sadly, you know, the one person we have here in this story with, you know, with a really big platform saying, you know, I effed up. I, I really, you know, I, I could have made things Again, I, I, I'm not putting this on Kyle Beach. I'm putting this on, on yeah, everybody yeah. else. I mean, Kyle Beach was dealing with his own tragedy here. He was. But what I'd like to see is a few people from, uh, you know, from the top floor offices in the Blackhawks uh, yeah. organization or Bettman, um, perhaps apologize and be as remorseful as Beach, who you're right, doesn't bear any responsibility was. We're not seeing any of that. And the fact that Bettman said he was distressed about this, and oh my goodness, can you can you actually comment on what another person has been to when you've been through when you're in that position? Uh, do you think the messaging will change from the NHL? It can't get any coarser than it is, so it's got nowhere to go um, but hmm. up. But but I hope that we remember. Um, I hope that there are long memories um, around this, and and you know, and not you know, it's very easy to talk about about leadership within the Blackhawks, leadership within the NHL, but also you have to think about who was in that locker room at the same time as Kyle Beach. I mean, we know that it was an open secret, and we need young young people going off mm. to highly competitive environments to understand that if you see something, say something, and to look out for the people around you, as opposed to just kind of having a wink and a nod about the fact that a violent crime was perpetrated virtually in front of you and nobody did anything and and this idea that that we're going to protect a video coach i mean even when you strip the 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 morality out of this um where is the equation where you say one single person on our coaching staff is so important to us that we're going to turn a violent a blind eye to a violent crime because what we have an unlimited supply of youngsters that we can keep on running through. Uh, it, it has shades of Larry Nasser, really, you know, how U.S. gymnastics could look and say, we're going to hold on to this yeah. one individual at the expense of countless other young athletes. Uh, only got a few seconds left here, Lisa. Are you happy with the coverage of this and how it has been presented? Yes. I think there's an awful lot of goodness in the coverage. The next step for me, though, that I'd really love to see is, again, back to those kind of creepy corners of the Internet. I did see an awful lot over the past uh, couple of days of people still saying, well, wait, Aldridge was a little guy and Beach was, you know, a young athlete. He could have yeah. just, you know, and it still feels like, or, or the, you know, oh, Beach's career hasn't turned out the way it should have, so now he's looking for his five minutes. I mean, yeah. these tropes, these myths about rape, are there larger than life right now? So that's the next step in this reporting is I think calling out every person who is saying this about, about Kyle Beach because they're creating a culture of silence or perpetrating a culture of silence. It's grotesque. Lisa Taylor with his former lawyer, now associate professor teaching journalism, law and ethics with the School of Journalism University, uh, sorry, formerly known as Ryerson. Uh, Lisa, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward with all of this. Okay, take good care. Thanks. 
the uh, premier earlier today at a news conference talking about raising the minimum wage January 1 from 14.35 an hour to $15 an hour. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeRoot School of Business, McMaster University, and with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you today. Marvin, I think we've had this discussion a bazillion times, but we always seem to see these arguments over minimum wage and what it should be and such. How can we even have these discussions without knowing what the real objective of the minimum wage is? Is the objective of the minimum wage to be a starter position, or is it designed to be something to live off of? Because it seems we have two different, totally different workers here, and I don't think either one should be getting what the other one is getting. Right. Well, if you don't mind, let me just turn your question ever so slightly. I think the first thing is, since it's the government who chooses what the minimum wage is, what are they trying to accomplish by this? So sometimes we have the law of unintended consequences. If I do this for those people, I accidentally do this to these other people over here. And your question is absolutely right. We certainly have... Uh, let's shall we say we just finished summer, so we have summer students who fill in at jobs or, or have part-time jobs to make some money maybe to help them go to school. They often get a minimum wage, but unfortunately there are also people who, for whatever reasons in life, that's, that's the job that they have and that's the one they have to support a family on. I think if the idea is I'm doing a minimum wage job as a, a way to make a little pin money as a case of the student to help fund my education, their need to have their wage goes up is quite different than somebody who's trying to support the family. And what? why is the government doing this? You, you know, to go back a little bit in history, Doug Ford was elected three, three and a half years ago. One of the very first things he did was take a look at the liberal plan at the time, which was to take the minimum wage from $14 to 15 and said, not on my watch, not going to do it. it. You know, we can't afford those things. And today, for instance, you've already seen reaction from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and the Canadian Federation of Independent Business that says this is this is terrible. You know, small businesses are trying to recover from COVID. It's been a tough 18 months. And now you're saddling them with this. You know, not that we're blaming those people, but can't you can't you give us a little more time to recover? So there are lots of critics who are saying this is wrong. Why is the government choosing to do this? And I, I do feel Doug was a little... Uh, what word am I looking for here? Cagey on the reason for this. I think if I'm being cynical, I can say, well, I know why you did this. For January 1st, there's an election in June. You want to try to give people a reason to reelect you. But if we're looking at government policy, who are you trying to help here? And it's not clear to me at all what the, what the motivation is to do this at this time. So uh, should he not have done it? Well, that's again, that's an interesting question, but it starts with, why are you doing it? If he said, you know, I got this wrong, folks, when I canceled the minimum but let's, wage... But let's, I, be in, but, let, but, let's, but let's be honest, Marvin. The only reason anybody does anything that's a politician is to get reelected, whether the well, uh, whether you're in a minority government or whether yeah. there's an election uh, seven months from now. But at the end of the day, uh, this is something that was asked for. It's something that he's moving towards. Uh, is this enough? Will this solve a problem? Or again, are we having two different discussions here, one about a, li- uh, a livable uh, wage and yep. one about a minimum wage? Right. So, again, great question. And, and my, my, to go back to my what's the policy here, if the idea is that he's listened to 
those advocates who talk about a living wage, and of course they recalculate this every year. Today, in Hamilton, I believe a living wage has to be about $18 an hour to allow you to raise a family, pay for a home, pay for food, what have you. Uh, not, not again as a part-time job, but as your major source of income. So $15, if you've heard this and you say, well, I want to do something, it's not enough to meet those people. There'll be lots of critics who say it's not enough. So then if it's not enough, why even bother doing it at this time? Is it just cynically a political move? And I, I think what Doug is trying to do is walk that middle line. I'm moving in the right direction, but I can't move where you want me to go at $18 an hour or $17.50 an hour. So I'm doing something rather than nothing. But let's also keep in mind that it was just, just literally, truly a month ago, on October 1st, that the minimum wage went up $0.10 cents an hour, uh, as it's supposed to do thanks to inflation. So it went from 14.25 to 14.35. What's changed in a month? You know, if you if you feel the number was wrong a month ago, why not make it $15 then? And why not make it $15 now? You've put it another two months off. It's just a very strange announcement. And unfortunately, it's the cynical side of me that says, I don't think this is based in good policy at all. I think this is just based as a re-election ploy. Uh, either way, does it matter? Because they get the money. Well, it does matter. So just to give you a sense of this, uh, I know 65 cents an hour doesn't seem like very much, going from 1435 to to $15. But there are at least 500,000 people who only earn minimum wage. If you give them another 65 cents an hour, and let's suppose they work 2,000 hours in a year, that's 50 weeks at 40 hours a week, uh, that's going to get them 1300 more dollars again those people will say well i'd rather have 1300 than nothing but when you multiply that out through that's going to cost small business or smaller businesses 650 million dollars do we know what percentage of those that make minimum wage are students versus those that are trying to live on it no uh and 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 again part of that is that you can be uh, trying to live on it and be a student you know some people who who maybe dropped out of high school are doing a minimum wage job but now are trying to go back to school part time because they realize for them to have a better life they knew to sign so you get these variations on a theme i'm i'm sort of a student but i'm not a full time student i'm sort of supporting the family but i don't really have children just yet and i'm in that middle ground as we go Again, this could be done also in the context of this sort of guaranteed uh, wage program that we've talked about. Let's let's give everybody a guaranteed minimum wage. You you all know what you're going to have to live on. We saw a pilot done here in Hamilton that, again, Doug Ford canceled, but it seemed to have had some benefits. So there are lots of different policy frameworks, but this announcement seems to be done completely without a framework, and therefore I don't really know what a good justification for it is at this time. I, I'm just thinking that I think people are blending two issues, the minimum yep. wage and, as you said, the guaranteed uh, livable wage, which yep. is, to me, uh, two totally different things. Marvin Ryder with us, professor with the DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. We will. Thank you. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, lots of chatter, uh, uh, well, for the last several months, years, in regard to uh, Huawei and its involvement in Canada and such, and whether we should be uh, involving them in our 5G. Uh, most of our allies say no. Uh, now we're finding out about more and more, and Yahoo being one of the last to pull out of China, big American tech pulling out of China. Uh,
because of the challenging business and legal environment. Uh, they're just getting squeezed uh, more and more and now have just decided to uh, pull in the uh, pull the plug. LinkedIn, other services like that uh, have already done so. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, Scott. So uh, why are our tech giants pulling out of China? Uh, all this discussion going on while we're debating in Canada whether to have Huawei as part of our 5G, so or part of our 5G. So what's the latest from Yahoo? Well, I think for, for Yahoo, uh, they are a company that actually got into trouble uh, a time ago in the United States because they passed over confidential details about the accounts of a couple of Chinese dissidents were then arrested. So they had that of a black eye. And I think that they risked further damage to their image if they were to comply with a, a new law which took effect yesterday called the Personal Information Protection Law. But there are some dimensions in there about safeguarding information and allowing China access to their uh, servers that were problematic for the handful, couple of companies that are still remaining in that high-tech sector, particularly LinkedIn, is gone. Uh, Yahoo's gone. Um, Google looked at the China market back in 2020, uh, talked about coming back in, and then took a pass. So uh, we're not expanding, the, the West is not expanding their influence, tech influence in China. Their, our companies are pulling out, yet they're trying to flourish here. Talk a little bit about the imbalance. Well, I think there is still an element of imbalance. Uh, certainly that would include Huawei, which is active in a lot of countries, mainly in the third world, but also in, in many companies. There has been, within that U.S.-China, West and China rivalry, the rivalry is most intense in the area of high technology, and particularly IT. So China shuts out Western uh, social media companies because they won't comply with Chinese rules. It basically means make it very open, transparent to the Chinese government. In Canada, we have not a lot of Chinese uh, uh, social media activity, but a lot of people who are in the who are Asians often use. Uh, Weibo uh, or one of the other social Chinese social platforms. Huawei is that big exception, and I suppose we're all waiting for a decision. So does this change the discussion? Considering what's happening with our tech there, does that change the discussion about allowing Huawei here? Does one influence the other? Well, I, one would have to think that the people who are making decisions would have a look at what's happening on the China side. Uh, now, I must emphasize American companies are rushing into China. They spent more money, invest, they put more investment money into China last year, 2020, than they did in previous years, several years. So it's not all of the corporate community that's staying away from China or shut out. But in terms of Huawei, in my opinion, what's happened is that the lack of a decision from government has led the telecoms to choose other platforms. Basically, Nokia and Ericsson are the only other big games in town. So they've already sailed their ships. Uh, it's too late for Huawei to get into the 5G. But I think Huawei would still like to not get that black hat label uh, of having been a uh, seen negatively by the Canadian government. So for that reason, I think they're still hanging in, hoping that there'll be no negative decision. I guess is this can't be put off forever. Uh, presumably in the next few weeks or months, 
that decision must come out. But the actual 5G decision, that's been taken by the telecoms themselves. who read the tea leaves and saw there was going to be no point waiting for a green light for Huawei on 5G. So obviously when that happens and tech makes, uh, the big business makes the decision for government, uh, does that put the prime minister in a more comfortable position? Well, I think it helped them put off the decision. The case could be made that while the two Michaels are still in detention, you didn't want to pile on a bunch of negative ne- negativity on the relationship. Right. That, that's gone now. They're out. So that's not an excuse. So at this point, I think clarity is probably needed. And uh, I can't imagine the Huawei being approved for 5G. It's either going to be Huawei not allowed to operate in any telecom systems or some kind of system whereby they can still keep their equipment where it is now, quite frankly, in, in simpler 3G, 4G, and some other applications, but shut out of 5G. It's impossible to imagine the government saying, welcome into 5G. I, I can't imagine that happening. Uh, you're talking about the black hat. Is the black hat not already there with the U.K. and the U.S. already making these decisions? And we always hear that Canada is such a, a small player in all of this. What do they care what Canada thinks? Well, I think each one matters. Uh, they, they do do some business here. They have done some business here. They do most of their business, as I mentioned, in third world countries, Eastern Europe, Asia, Africa, Latin America, etc. But I think they don't like a lot of negativity. And they've been in a lot of pressure because they're now having difficulty accessing they can't get the most advanced chips from the United States any longer. So that slowed down their phone business. They've had to drop some applications from their phones. So the West can still do them damage reputationally or practically in terms of access to, to key uh, chips. They're trying, to, of course, to get to the point that China's get, trying to get to the point where they don't need those. They'd be self-sufficient. But they're a long ways from that yet. Does China not want these foreign tech companies to invest there? I think they, they do because they make business, doing business easier, both for foreign companies and for Chinese companies in China. But they want the, these firms uh, to, like Google, Facebook, etc., do it on Chinese terms, which would mean yeah. accepting a heavy hand of censorship. That's not going to happen. So is this a significant thing that has happened? Once we have Yahoo, there's not many left. How significant is this? Or is this just another another day for, for business relations between the two? I think it is significant because of the passage of that law, which was passed in August and came into effect yesterday. So that then puts in a presumably a semi-permanent barrier for other new entrants. Of course, new tech firms, social media firms come up every day, right? every month, it seems. I can't keep track myself. But uh, this will mean that there is, in effect, a barrier for most Western companies that will not want to accept Chinese terms of operating in the social media sphere. Gordon Holden with us, Director of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. A pleasure. Thank you, Scott. All right, it is 5.50, it is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will on the board, Ted and Diana in the newsroom. And coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show, hosted by Scott Radley, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Hey, great to grapple with you. <laughs> yeah, we spent all afternoon. We, we, no, no. Oh. If, we, if we were doing it in snow, you might be closer. 
It's it's, but again, it's something that uh, the newsroom has been on all afternoon, and Scott will have the answer to what that all means coming up a little later on on his show. All right, because uh, oh, Diana sure. has. Now you want me to do research? No, sure. Diana's done it for you. She'll tell you what the answer is. Oh, don't worry, okay. don't worry. I just don't want to spoil the fun. I'm teasing you here, bud. I'm teasing your audience. That's, no, I, I, that's good. I, you're teasing me too. I know I got to look it up. I mean, I'll learn today. <laughs> Not only do you have to listen to the show, you actually have to do it too. All right, <laughs> I wanted to talk about uh, minimum wage with you uh obviously raised to 15 dollars as of january 1 uh ford announced that earlier today and uh, you know whenever we talk about this and we talk about it a lot over time uh that we seem to be confusing what the objective of the minimum wage is and people try to cloud these two issues so uh, what is the minimum wage is the minimum wage designed to be a starter position salary as in a student or would a minimum wage be designed for someone who who's trying to raise a family, holding two or three minimum jobs, perhaps like a single parent. To me, that is two completely different situations, and it's two completely different people. And, you know, I think what a lot on the left, uh, on the extreme left, are trying to do is to take these two situations and make them one, to, to try to solve the livable wage uh, conversation with the minimum wage. And I don't think that, to me, that's like saying that a vaccine passport is what we really want to talk about when really what you're pushing for is mandatory vaccine. So just be honest with people and tell people what it is you're trying to do. And I think they'd be more supportive. I think this is two separate things rather than a minimum wage and that's designed for a student and someone who's to live on it. Your thoughts? Well, I think I saw something earlier this week. Maybe it was on your show. I don't know. Maybe I heard it. But I thought I saw something this week that, I don't know, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation or someone had looked at minimum wage jobs with what you're describing. And the number of people who are truly trying to subsist on minimum wage jobs is actually very small. Yes. There, are, there are some. It's not that there's none. But the, 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 the idea that there are millions and millions and millions of people trying to put food on their table for a family of four on minimum wage, it's really not an overwhelmingly high number. Now, I'm going to verify this with Ian Lee tomorrow, BizProf from Carlton, but he said this, and I think it's you know, the majority of the people who are on minimum wage are in the 18 to 25 uh, age bracket. And so, so to your point, I mean, this is where this thing does get complicated because if you're a high school student, who is working on the side and you're living at home, should your boss, and you're doing a, a what's the right way? I don't want to be saying something negative here, but a menial job. You're doing something that really requires no skills, just they need a body to do something. Should you be getting $17, $18, $19, whatever the living wage is that is now being, I think 17 was the number they talked about in Hamilton yeah. recently. Um, should you be getting 17 for that? And, and, and here's the concern that I have with that. We've already seen it in grocery stores. We've already seen it in Costco now. We've already seen it in Walmart. You start raising the minimum wage too much for those kinds of jobs that require zero skills. And what do they do? They replace you with a machine. So ultimately, mm. you're making fewer jobs available for mm. those particular people to have to help pay for university and, and things like that. Um, look, I'm, I'm not arguing against paying people. Absolutely, I think you're onto something. I think you're onto something that these are two different things. And and, and now the, the the question would be, Scott, how do you separate them? 
how do you determine who gets the living wage? You separate it. You, you separate the way every other single employer in any industry does it. You know, people who start at a company start at a certain level, and then as they get experience, they may be paid more. Then as they take on new responsibilities or no or new roles, uh, new roles or or more education, their 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 compensation is raised. That's how it works. Yeah, and you could also do it on your tax form, I suppose, if you can prove that you are not living at home with a primary caregiver. Or no, that's the wrong word because you're, if you're 18, it's not a caregiver. But you know what I'm saying? If you're not living at yeah. home, if you're trying to subsist, then you can show on your tax forms. Maybe that's the way to do it. But I mean, look, if I own a business, and especially after COVID, and I'm scrambling to get by, and things are tough, and whatever else, and I've got a bunch of 18-year-old high school students working for me. I, you know, I'm hiring them because because they are cheap labor and because they are not having to pay to to feed themselves, presumably, or something else. And so, you know, it, it's it's a really tricky one because we're talking all the time about how businesses have suffered through COVID, and you know, we've got inflation going up. We've got and that's going to cost businesses more and people more. And we've got all these things happening, and now we're saying. To everybody, all the minimum wage jobs, you have to pay more. Maybe this will be the magical elixir. Maybe this will bring us out. Maybe this will be, and this is sort of, I think, what the idea is. This will put more money in everyone's pocket, so we'll spend more, and the economy will boom. Again, at the end, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, or it's inflation, which could also be the possibility here. Again, uh, I think this is two completely different discussions, and I think there's a political movement on the extreme left that are tr- trying to combine the two without really telling everybody what it's about. And again, I liken it to, hey, let's bring in a vaccine passport. Well, that sounds like a good idea. We'll make it more uh, efficient, whatever. Well, yeah, it's really not about that. It's about making it mandatory. And again, I'm all for vaccination, and, and they should be mandatory. But again, I, I think if, if, if these if politicians or special interest would tell both sides of the story, I think they'd have a little better time selling all of this as opposed to just say, well, you know, this person, you you know, they can't make it on their minimum wage. Well, that's not what it was designed to be. No. And, and, you know, I know we're out of time, but, you know, and you said on the left, Except that here's Doug Ford raising the minimum wage, so now it's not. You can't really. Yeah, no, 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 no. What we what we have determined today is Doug Ford is neither a conservative, a liberal, or an NDP, and he said as much himself. Which is, you know what? Why he's doing okay, and perhaps some of the other leaders should listen to them and come to the center instead of being in the extremes. Scott Radley is coming up next, host of the Scott Radley Show. Scott, thanks for the the time. By the way, studying Grapple. I'm going to study it right now. And you will have the answer moments from now on the Scott Radley Show. Thank you, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Will and Diana and Ted for contributing. As always with Hamilton Today, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to have the last word. But these people have been on shutdowns two or three times throughout the last yeah. couple of years. Some of the, some of these businesses have gone out to borrow money to do what? To even be able to pay the people they're in with them. And will they will they hire anybody more? Nighty night.